This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for the statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. The Women in Military Service for America Memorial at the ceremonial entrance to the Arlington National Cemetery is the only major national memorial honoring all women who have defended America throughout history. Their patriotism and bravery are part of our nation's history and commemorated through this memorial and the work of the foundation charged with its mission of honoring all servicewomen past, present, and future. How does the Women in Military Service for America Memorial commemorate the courage and sacrifice of the female members of the U.S. Armed Forces? And what is the mission of the foundation that created it? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, retired Major General Jen Edmonds, chairwoman of the Women in Military Service for America Memorial Foundation. My co-host today from IBM is Nicole Gardner. Jen, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. No, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Nicole, great to have you back as always. It's wonderful to be here. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. So, uh, Jen, would you provide us with an overview of the history and mission of the Women in Military Service for America Foundation? Now, the foundation exists to support the memorial, which is co-located at Arlington National Cemetery. But it was begun in about 1980 when a bunch of women who felt like their service was being overlooked uh, got together and started to campaign for a memorial dedicated to the service of military women throughout history. And they were able to get the attention of the American Veterans Committee, who supported them, and then uh, Representative Mary uh, Okar. Introduced some legislation in 82, you know, Washington, it took to 86 to get that approved and to do the back and forth on whether or not a memorial was appropriate and necessary. So it was approved and signed off in 86, which meant fundraising had to begin in earnest. Uh, So it took about 10 years to raise funds, and it was dedicated in uh, October of 1997. You know, the foundation was established to support the memorial, to make it. Yes, and yes. So how is the foundation organized? How does it operate? And, and how are you funded? We're funded, uh, most important question to answer first, <laughs> we're funded primarily through individual donations. Uh, about 73, 75% of our funds come from Uh, the people most connected to our mission, which is the military women and their families and their friends who support the memorial. We get some uh, funding from uh, sponsors, uh, foundations, organizations, corporations, really more in the beginning uh, when it was being built than now. We struggle a little bit for that kind of funding now. And this year we've got, uh, last year and this year, we got a little bit of money from Congress to do some structural repairs to the actual building itself. The foundation is organized with a board of directors that has the fiscal oversight responsibility for the operation of the uh, memorial and raising funds. And we have a actual staff, a paid staff, that does the hard work, uh, keeps the doors open every day, provides tours, runs the register, curates the artifacts, answers questions of researchers and things of that nature. So let's talk a little bit about your specific role. You're the chairwoman of the Women in Military Service for America Foundation. Tell us a little bit about your duties, your responsibilities. So as a board chair, it's uh, my job to uh, lead the uh, rest of the board members in the oversight. And any nonprofit board, they're they're primary responsibility is fiduciary, mm-hmm. making sure that the funds that are raised are uh, fully accounted for in accordance with uh, nonprofit rules and the IRS regulations, and that our donors are recognized and that that money is spent appropriately on the highest priorities of the 
memorial to keep it operational and to recognize our military women. So, you know, as board chairwoman uh, and your role with the memorial and with the foundation, what are some of the key challenges you face? Well, any nonprofit has uh, one big challenge in common, and that is fundraising. I mean, you don't exist without being able to convince people that the mission that you have is worthy of their donations. The hard part for our particular memorial is that when you say the word veteran to most Americans, the image that comes to their mind is an image of a man. Not many Americans really spend a lot of time thinking about the fact that more than three million women have also served. So when we go to foundations and organizations asking for help, they haven't given it any thought at all. So we have to spend the first part of the conversation, really educating and convincing people that these are amazing stories that need to be preserved, that deserve to be preserved, and must be a part of our historical narrative. So that's the first challenge, is uh, making that connection and then having people come to the memorial, understand how important what we're doing is, have them understand some of the stories that we're able to curate and convincing them that we should fit within their giving profile. So what has surprised you most since becoming chairwoman of the foundation? Boy, there's a lot of things that surprised me. But I would tell you, I'll I'll just go personally first. I was surprised at how much I didn't know. I lived women's history in the military for 32 of my own years. And I am astounded every day by stories I didn't know about, by people I didn't know about that I should know about. I'll give you an example. Have you ever heard of the Buffalo Soldiers? Mm -hmm. Black soldiers served in in cavalry. Everybody seems to know that. Does anybody know about the 6888 Postal Battalion? No. It's an all-black battalion that was formed in World War II and sent to uh, England and France to dig through six tons of mail that had never made it to the front lines. These were remarkable women in a country that was still largely segregated who volunteered to serve and go do this job 24 hours a day to dig. Why why didn't I know about that? Or Dr. Olivia Hooker. It's Black History Month. Why don't we stay on the same theme? Dr. Olivia, Olivia Hooker was one of the few survivors of the Tulsa race riots. She was about six years old, uh, survived by hiding under a table. So she went uh, later in her life to be one of the first women to join the Coast Guard, a woman whose country did not start out her formative years embracing her, demanded the opportunity to serve in the Coast Guard. She's an amazing woman. Why didn't I know her name? So to me, what astounds me every day is remarkable, remarkable stories that are out there that we must find a way to preserve. If we, if we let another generation go by and not collect these stories, shame on us. We can't go back to the revolution and know any more than we know now. Mm-hmm. We have the capability, the technology, and the opportunity to ensure every woman's service is remembered. Mm-hmm. That's great. So what about your career path? Um, you were a general. Mm-hmm. And, and um, how did you begin your career? And perhaps you could tell us how you got to become the chairwoman. So people ask me where I'm from, and I generally say I'm from the Army. My <laughs> father was in the military. He served 36 years, uh, World War II, Korea, early part of Vietnam. So when I grew up, I grew up on military bases. And to me, that environment was home. And my father always believed that service was the highest calling. Not maybe the one that gave you the greatest remuneration, but it was definitely the highest calling. And I believed it, and I still believe it. And when it was time for my older brother um, to serve, he went to Vietnam as a helicopter pilot. I joined the Army my last year of college. I couldn't wait to go home. To me, it was my home. My younger brother uh, served in the Navy for eight years as a pilot. And uh, this Friday, I'm going to go down to the commissioning ceremony for my nephew, who is graduating from Warren Officer Candidate School. So it's in her blood. Um, I was branched ordnance, which is a maintenance field in the Army, and enjoyed every minute of it. Um, Apparently, my father's rule that do do your best at everything you do paid off because I managed to make it to uh, two-star general, not because that was my goal, but it was my reward for doing a good job, I guess. How I got to be the chairman of the foundation? Well, I was there on dedication day. Um, in 1997. 
And I really didn't think much about it when they were raising the money. I mean, I donated, and I said, okay, this is going to be good. Uh, but I was of the era that I wanted to be a soldier, not a woman soldier. I wanted to serve not as a woman but as a military member, equal and fully capable of doing whatever was asked of me. But I went to that dedication, and there were 40,000 women there. And number one, when you show people a picture of dedication, they never had an idea that there were that many women in service. And that was only 40,000 out of 3 million. It was amazing. And to me, I realized all of a sudden how important it was to all these women to finally feel recognized, seen as a full part of our national history. So I gave money to the memorial for that entire period. And then when I retired from the military and from my second career, I thought, well, you know, it's time to give more back. And I got involved with the memorial, and we needed a um, chairperson who was available, had time to do some of the hard things that we needed to get done. A good friend of mine was the president of the foundation and twisted my arm behind my back. <laughs> I said, well, you know, be careful what you wish for because when I'm in, I'm all in. <laughs> so um, that's how I got to be the chair. And I think it's been a great experience. I'm looking forward to making even more progress mm-hmm. with the board and the foundation and the uh, memorial activities. So it's been a great run so far. Well, thinking about that run, General, you know, from your time in the military to your time in private sector um, and and now in the nonprofit field. What makes an effective leader? And perhaps you could illustrate how you were such a leader. The hard part is there's no cookie cutter. The hard part is there's no cookie cutter. In the military, there is a very distinct hierarchy of rank structures and who works for who. And when you give an instruction as a leader in the military, as long as it's a legal instruction, it's obeyed. Uh, So it's a much different circumstance. But even then, as a leader, if if your subordinates don't see you as fully committed to the mission and fully committed to their well-being, if they don't trust you, um, they'll find a way to undermine you. So trust is the the core, whether you're in the military, private sector, or a nonprofit. I think the difference— between so it's got to be situational. The difference between the military and the private sector is it's a lot more um, negotiation. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, even then, there's still a certain hierarchy within a corporation on who works for who and how things get done. But you know, you don't have the same rapid fire. You need something done. You give an order, and nobody stands there for an hour and questions why you want to do it that way. Um, in an in any nonprofit, uh, I think you have to negotiate infinitely more mm-hmm. because there's so many people with so many good ideas. You could become stuck. Mm-hmm in your ability to go forward if you can't find a way to negotiate through the different opinions on what direction you ought to go and find a path that everyone can get behind. Who's influenced your leadership style? My dad. My dad. He was a hard man. He uh, never treated me like a girl, like, like I could. He never treated me like I couldn't do anything my brothers could do. And he demanded our best in anything that we attempted to do. So I grew up and joined the Army on the belief that whatever I wanted to do, I could do. There would would not be, I didn't believe, there would be any artificial barriers to what I could do. And I really never found any. What prompted the creation of the Women in Military Service for America Memorial? We'll ask retired Major General Jan Edmonds when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is retired Major General Jan Edmonds, chairwoman of the Women in Military Service for America Memorial Foundation. My co-host today from IBM is Nicole Gartner. So, Jan, um, 
What are the strategic, the key strategic priorities for the foundation? Uh, sustainability has to be number one. Uh, we uh, successfully eliminated all debt uh, last year, so we are uh, debt-free, which is for a nonprofit, sometimes a very enviable position. Mm-hmm. We still have challenges ensuring sustainability, which means uh, going out and do the hard work of fundraising and finding the people who connect to our mission and what we're trying to do. So that's number one. Number two is fix the building. Mm -hmm. 20 years worth of uh, inability to deal with maintenance issues have taken a toll. So we need to finish that. And then following that, updating our exhibits. Uh, You know, history continues. And uh, probably we're maybe 10, 15 years behind in our permanent exhibits right now. We, We try to represent the current day, but we really need to go back and redo all of the interior exhibits to properly represent each period with enough representation. So um, speaking about the building and the memorial itself, tell us a little bit more about the design. What went into the actual design of the memorial, and how does it commemorate and memorialize all these stories you were talking about, about women who've served uh, in the United States military forces? So the building itself uh, was anchored on an existing structure. There was at Arlington National Cemetery a structure that was built in the 1930s. It's a hemicycle-shaped wall, and it was designed to connect the two entryways in the cemetery. So that existed, but it was in a horrible state of repair. There were options within the D.C. area for location, but um, when General Vaught, who was our first president, saw the hemicycle and saw its proximity to Arlington, not that the memorial is strictly there for people who've passed away, but it is a reverent place. It does honor service. So uh, she uh, decided on that as a number one option. Uh, Of course, it's Washington, D.C., and any placement of any monument has to go through a a great deal of drama before it gets approved. But once finally approved, that hemicycle, that existing structure, was excavated behind. And the building itself was inserted behind that hemicycle, and it was updated, cleaned up, only minor modifications to that facade itself. But behind it, and this is why some people don't even know we're there, behind it is the Women's Memorial. So that existing wall is the anchor of our building. And then within the building, most places that you go in D.C. that are kind of a monument or a museum, they're dark. Ours is not. It's full of light. There is a light um, paneled structure at the top of our building that uh, makes it a bright, um, inviting place to be. We have within it permanent exhibits that basically are timeline-driven of the history of women in the military. It's timeline-driven, but it's story-driven, individual stories, individual artifacts of people, like the logbook of a woman wasp going through training, flight training, and her notes on the different parts of her training. I mean, these, to me, the individual part of the story is the real written, richness of the memorial. The timeline just gives you the backdrop mm-hmm. to anchor these stories against. We have a register. Any woman who has served is eligible to register and become part of a national monument forever. We curate their story, and it becomes part of this history. We have a hall of honor uh, for those who have passed, and it's a place of reflection, and we try to recognize those uh, women who have given their last full measure in their service to their country. We have an auditorium that is used for programming of our own, for programming that other people want to bring to the memorial. Uh, It's a venue that's used by military people at the Pentagon, often for retirement and promotion ceremonies. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's there to tell a history, but to me more, it's there to tell the stories, Mm -hmm. the stories of people and their service and their sacrifice. You know, you, you mentioned to us earlier how the memorial where the foundation and hence the memorial is funded. One thing, given the location, the, the co-location with uh, Arlington National Cemetery, what is your relationship or the foundation's relationship, say, with the National Park Service and or Arlington sure. National? So Arlington National Cemetery is our neighbor, mm-hmm. and, and they uh, have control of some resources that we need to use, like parking availability, access to the cemetery property. 
So they're more a neighbor, but we try to you know be a good neighbor. And clearly, things that we do at the memorial impact the cemetery. If somebody's having a service or they're honoring a family member, that we wouldn't want to be doing anything at the memorial that would degrade that service. So we're very cognizant of where we're located. The uh, park service is more of a partner than the cemetery in the sense that they own the outside of the building. That facade that our building is built behind is actually owned by the Park Service. So we have to work very carefully with the Park Service and work within the rules of the National Park Service. For example, our opening hours, we're open 364 days a year, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. by Park Service rules. If we have material in our bookstore, we have to make sure that it's in compliance with Park Service rules, what kinds of things can be in our gift shop. So we work very carefully with the Park Service if we have an event and we need security, if we need access, if we need anything done that affects the facade of the building, we have to work that through and get permitted by mm-hmm. the Park Service. Just as a follow-up, given all these shutdowns, did we, was the foundation, was the memorial affected by the recent shutdown? No, okay. because we are privately funded, yeah. <clears throat> so we were open. So March is Women's History Month, um, but March is an opportunity to get the word out to the general public. And um, Jan, tell us a little bit more about the history of women in the U.S. Armed Forces and how that role has evolved over time. Give us some highlights. So that's a long history. It's as old as the country, so I'm not going to give you a lot of highlights. But women have been serving in the military, with the military, since before we had a formal army. And I would tell you that uh, women have always volunteered to serve. They've never been conscripted. In fact, women have fought to serve. So in the revolution, maybe you've heard of Molly Pitcher. Okay, so she picks up the artillery guns when her husband falls in battle. But have you heard of Cathay Williams? Cathay Williams was a black woman who disguised herself as a man and served in the 8th Indiana Regiment. I mean, women have always found a way to serve, even when people told them they couldn't. So women have uh, always walked through that door every opportunity to be able to serve. When the uh, Navy and the Marine Corps uh, opened their doors to women in World War II to uh, offset some shortages they had in uh, the number of men they had, hundreds of women uh, lined up the first day, hundreds. And they were only taking a fraction of those, but every opportunity, uh, when the uh, final combat exclusion was lifted, and their uh, Secretary of Defense said there will be no jobs that are not available to women, people thought, "Oh, women won't want to be in the infantry. They won't want to be in the Rangers. They won't want to be in the Special Forces." They do, and they are. Every single day, there's another story about a woman who has graduated from these courses that were heretofore considered too difficult physically for women to accomplish. So women have been there with the country from the beginning, and I dare say we'll be there in perpetuity, fighting for an opportunity to serve. That's incredible. And so I know these stories are being featured on your website and on Instagram. Uh, There is a campaign going on called Changing the Face of Courage. Can you talk to us a little bit about that campaign, the purpose of it, and um, talk about your objectives? Absolutely. So our mission is to honor the women who've served, educate the public about that service, empower the next generation of boys and girls to consider service and the opportunity that service offers, and to remember those who have given the last full measure. When we do that, if we're successful, in my, in my mind anyway, we change what courage looks like in the mind of the American public. That when you say the word veteran or the word courage or the word patriot, you don't only think of a man. You think of a man and a woman, a man or a woman. So to me, this idea of changing the face of courage is the culminating success of everything that we exist to do. And that means we now have people who automatically do associate the service. If I'm wearing an Army T-shirt, somebody doesn't think it's not mine. Mm -hmm. Or if I park in a veteran's parking spot, nobody is coming out to challenge me to say I don't deserve to be in that parking spot. So the campaign is designed to highlight the extraordinary things that ordinary people have done, ordinary women who did the first most courageous thing, which is to raise your right hand to serve. 
you know, 1% or so of the American population will ever do that. So when other people are stepping back, these women stepped up and said, pick me. You don't know when you volunteer to serve whether you'll be shot at, Mm -hmm. killed, hurt. You don't – there's no guarantees. It's not like you raise your right hand to serve and know that you're going to be a hero. Mm -hmm. You only know you're going to serve. And yet – these women's most first most courageous act, any person who serves mo- first most courageous act is raising the right hand and taking the oath. After that, it's random. Hmm. And the courage that people have shown in many different ways, leaving your newborns and going off to war, does that take courage? I would say so. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime you have to deploy, but as a, if you're a mother and you have a small young child, that's a different kind of courage. It's it's not the one where, you know, you know for sure somebody's going to shoot at you, but you know for sure it's going to impact your life. So this courage comes in so many forms. And the people we're highlighting represent that diversity of experience and how these ordinary people have done some absolutely extraordinary things. Is the Stacy Pearsall exhibit still? Up? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, Stacy Pearsall is one of our heroes, and one of our uh, she was our first face of courage when we started the campaign. Uh, she runs a program to take uh, pictures of. She goes around the country taking pictures of veterans. I call them character photos because she manages to capture the spirit of the person in a photo- in her photography. And uh, we had her into the memorial in November when we kicked off our Change in the Face of Courage campaign. She graciously agreed to be our first face of courage, and she brought us an exhibit of women veterans through um, different eras, World War II to today. There's not many World War I gals left, but she brought us a great exhibit, and it's still up at the memorial for people to come see. You know, um, would you tell us about another initiative you folks have, which is the Women in the Global War on Terror in Memoriam Uh, honor roll initiative? What is that? So that is uh, an initiative we started after the beginning of the operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it um, is intended to ensure that no woman who lost her life in service to her country is forgotten. So we make sure they're registered. We uh, try to get a photo for their registration. And we keep copies of the registrations, basically the biography, short biography, of every woman who has fallen in Iraq and Afghanistan. Our ultimate objective is to be able to have um, all women who have lost their life in service to country um, represented in the Hall of Honor, not just uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, because there's certainly others. 148 women in Iraq and Afghanistan, the last one in January of this year in Syria. So Mm -hmm. we don't want our nation ever to forget their name. What does the future hold for the Women in Military Service for America Foundation? We will ask its chairwoman, retired Major General Jan Edmonds, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is retired Major General Jan Edmonds, chairwoman of the Women in Military Service for America Memorial Foundation. My co-host today from IBM is Nicole Gartner. So, Jan, how else does the foundation document the experiences of military women, and how does the foundation use innovative platforms to tell their stories of service, sacrifice, and achievement? I know we have a, a whole database archive thing going on. 
Well, beyond the stories, which, of course, are digital, we have artifacts. So we have documents that go along with the stories, photographs, uh, tangible, curatable objects. Uh, an example would be a uh, wedding dress made out of parachute material in World War II where uh, a gal was getting married overseas to a service member, and they had no silk. So they made a parachute out of or a wedding dress out of an old parachute. Uh, so those kinds of artifacts that don't exist anywhere else, and we actually lend them to other museums. We have some on display at the Smithsonian. We just finished a, um, a World War I commemoration with the Postal Museum. As a as an example of artifacts, they, they collect stamps and envelopes, right? Uh -huh. They don't have letters. So when they wanted to do this exhibit, they came to the Women's Memorial because we do have letters home. So they had an exhibit up. Uh, it was called In Her Own Words, Letters from women who were serving with the uh, forces overseas in World War One. Awesome. That's fascinating. Um, how does the Memorial Education Center factor into the work? Well, the Memorial Education Center is the physical structure. So it, that's its name, the Memorial, Memorial Education Center. So by telling history, it does education. And then programmatically, when we have different programs on uh, women's history, we just did a program last year on the uh, 100th anniversary of the first woman serving in the Marine Corps. So we had a exhibit up for that. We had uh, speakers come in and people come in. So we'll run programs that are um, uh, rec recognizing certain anniversaries or certain major events. So just as a follow-up, would you want to say a few words about the ambassadors? We have uh, ambassadors in every state. It's a program we started about a um, year and a half ago to have somebody, at least one representative in every state, who could go out and talk about the history of uh, women's service, could talk about the memorial and encourage women to register and become part of this historical narrative. So we have... Um, about 85 ambassadors right now across the country. Um, I talk with them uh, regularly, both uh, uh, electronically and uh, in person. I'm actually going to stop on my trip to Alabama and see a few of them and uh, see how we can help from the um, foundation perspective them reach out to more women. So, Jen, you are also, besides being the chairwoman of the board of the foundation, you also uh, lead their development and fundraising effort. And I know you alluded to earlier on some of the ways uh, the foundation and hence the memorial uh, uh, fun is funded, mm -hmm. if you will. I was wondering if you could delve a little bit deeper into your development strategy. Mm -hmm. Are you leveraging any sort of innovative ways or methods to, to make sure you get funded to capacity? So um, I would say yes. Real um, little reservation and hesitation, <laughs> I guess. I think our fundraising strategy is evolving. Sure. I don't think we have evolved on social media mm -hmm. uh, as much, but most of our audience, um, our main audience, is not a social True. media based yeah, audience, right. especially when you get into the older generations. The contemporary generations we're trying to reach are, though, so we're trying more. Uh, to get out in social media. The Changing Face of Courage campaign was specifically designed to be a social media-based campaign. So Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, we ha we're having a little bit of a fits and starts with that because it's not our basic fundraising methodology. So our audiences have not been developed mm -hmm. in those environments yet. And that's part of what the campaign would accomplish is get some more people following us on social media and, you know, watching for our tweets that come out to highlight the service of military women. You know, as a follow-on to that sort of strategy and, and, and delving into new platforms to get the message out, to tell folks about the memorial, yeah, how are you partnering with either government agencies, and you alluded to that, I'm, I'm thinking the Pentagon or DOD itself, but also, and more importantly, the private sector? How are, how are they helping you with your mission? So we have some very loyal partners in the private sector who uh, help us almost every year. Um, I would tell you that it's a handful, okay. um, not as many as I would hope that we have, and we're working hard to try to reconnect with some businesses in the private sector who supported us when the memorial was built. Uh, but their fundraising profile, their their donating profiles kind of changed over the course of the last 15 years of conflict and different challenges out there for veterans and veterans' families. 
So we're trying to do a, a better job of reconnecting with them. Um, Partner-wise, I think one of our biggest partners with the um, public sector is the Center for Women Veterans at the VA. Oh, okay. We try to support any program that they're having, and they try to support programs that we're having. So we're great partners because we have the same constituency, basically. We're all trying to help uh, military women, uh, women veterans, uh, be recognized. Of course, the VA has a different mission. They're trying to help them get educational benefits and medical benefits and so forth. But part of it is about ensuring that everybody's included. So together, we have a very uh, compatible mission of making sure that that everyone is included in the conversation, whether we're talking benefits or just recognizing them in history. That's right. So um, what do you hope to accomplish for the foundation and hence the memorial over the next couple of years? Well, if you look at it from a a Washington, D.C. tourism perspective, we want to be a destination everybody wants to go to. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would hope um, uh, optimistically that when you say the Women's Memorial, somebody doesn't ever say again, where is that? (laughs) I've never heard of it. Um, I would want everybody in the greater metropolitan D.C. area to visit it at least once. I would hope that when travel companies are wanting to come to bring tours to the national capital area, they realize that the Women's Memorial ought to be on their uh, travel uh, ticket, not because we get anything out of people coming in the doors. It's free to come to the memorial, but it's the history. We want an opportunity to tell. And and when I see young groups in particular uh, come through and I see teenagers taking pictures boys and girls taking pictures of different parts of our exhibits, it makes me feel good mm-hmm. because I think they're learning something. And when I see young boys and girls looking at a picture of a uh, woman military astronaut or doctor or scientist, and the, the girls, I want them to want to be that. And the boys, I want them to recognize that women can be that. See, so I think that the more people who come through our uh, memorial and see this history on display, the better we will be as a nation as we accept that there are no limits. And one of the nice things about the military is it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor when you come in the door. Everyone's equal. And from there, it's about the energy you put into your job, to your career. And I want every kid that comes through, every mom and dad that comes through to understand how much opportunity there is, even if you grow up in an environment that's trying to drag you down every single day. So, Jan, what does the future hold for the foundation, and what can someone do if they want to volunteer? How do they do that? We have a great volunteer program. Um, You can find information about how to apply online. We um, have volunteers that help us do tours. We have volunteers that help us sort mail. We have volunteers that help us move uh, artifacts around. We have volunteers that help us with our social media. We have a great deal of opportunity for volunteers. Trying to develop more opportunities for interns, it's a little bit more difficult of a, a proposition, especially if you're talking about college kids who need summer jobs. And of course, fundraising is a big challenge for a nonprofit, so finding money to do that kind of thing is a challenge. But um, we have great opportunities for people to volunteer. And again, you can find information on that on our website. And what about the future of the foundation? What are your aspirations there? No, the, my aspiration for the foundation is that um, we are able to mature as a board and that our role in helping sustain the organization becomes more mature. Um, we've had a long history of having one fundraiser in chief, and that was a president, and really the board needs to be deeply involved in ensuring the sustainability of the organization. So the board has to be engaged. And they are. We have a great board. But uh, our processes and procedures, like any organization, need to be continually refined. Any, if you were to look over like 20 years from now, so so we're into 22 years, right? Since Mm -hmm. 97 was the time it was. uh, What do you think? um, Is there any thoughts of expanding? Or is the footprint what it is? No, the footprint is pretty locked in. Um, We're surrounded by the cemetery and 
I wouldn't even think, think it, of, no. Yeah. Um, it's a great spot. It's a it's a great spot. And if you ever want to see something really cool, go on the top of our building on the 4th of July. Yeah. It is amazing. Awesome. Yes. It's the best view. view best view, I'm telling you. Um, which makes it a, a highly sought venue for Fourth uh, of July activities. So that's it's a fundraising vehicle. Yeah, fundraising vehicle. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, you can't miss a beat when yep. you're a nonprofit. Um, so uh, sustainability has to be my key word. I mean, making sure that going forward, we're never in a situation again where we're going to our constituents and saying, "Look, you know, we might not be here," mm-hmm. and uh, every time. That has happened. Of course, our constituents have stepped up, but it shouldn't be that way. Yeah, this question. You mentioned the VA from a public sector uh, perspective that you collaborate with the organization within VA. I was wondering, is there any natural allies or um, other stakeholders that you're looking to maybe connect with and get that message? And there's a sort of a synergy there? Well, we're partners with just about every veterans organization, okay. military support organization out there. Um, the VFW, the um, American Legion, uh, DAR has been a great supporter. Daughters of American Revolution have been great supporters over time. Academy Women, which is an organization of uh, graduates from the different military academies, when we were having really bad financial problems in 2016, they stepped up and did a fundraiser for us, raised about um, $90,000 to help us you know, stay in business yeah. effectively. So we have great partnerships with other military organizations. I don't see us as competing. Mm-hmm. Our is Ours is not an issues-based organization. It's an educational-based organization. Most of the other um, military organizations out there, veterans organizations, have a different purpose. Mm-hmm. So we're not stepping on each other. It's when almost it, complimentary. Very complimentary. And we try without becoming partisan mm-hmm. or... Um, jumping outside our educational role, we try to be as supportive as we can. So, General, you know, 32 years, I understand, in the Army, Mm -hmm. um, and now your service uh, to women, uh, memorializing women in the military. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service or military service? I don't think there's any great greater reward. I mean, it's not a financial um, direction to go. I mean, it's not a place you're going to go and get rich. You're going to go and get a heck of an education in uh, leadership and responsibility and accountability. And I would tell you, if I could go back today, I would go back. I loved every minute of being in the military. Mm-hmm. And it, the, the, the emotional income can't be beat. Great. So it is, uh, we are going to be um, Women's History Month. How can people get involved? Can we reiterate that? How can they either support sure. the foundation? Sure. So easy things to do are follow us on Facebook, Twitter. Um, it does matter to sponsors when they look at who they reach when they help any uh, charitable organization. Uh, we are completing our Faces of Courage, Changing the Face of Courage campaign in March. We're trying to make a another big push into March with highlighting uh, more women as we go through Women's History Month. Um, certainly, we're always interested in sustainment, and you know you can translate that into donations. We're always interested in in expanding our um, pool of donors and people who are interested in sustaining the memorial. And it's it's not like uh, a lot. I mean, if ten dollars. You know, I mean, if you had the opportunity to go to the memorial and you were impressed by these stories of these women, a very nominal um, support is a lot when it comes to a national memorial. If everybody, you know, gave us just a little bit, mm-hmm. we would be able to move past this word sustainment and on to bigger. And, and better challenges of programming and expanding our opportunity to get out across the nation with this story. And thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're it was great welcome. to have you. Pleasure. To continue our conversation on women in the military, next up I will share an excerpt of my interview with Vice Admiral Raquel Bono, leader of the Defense Health Agency, DHA, when the Business of Government Hour returns.
The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, commemorating women in the military. To end this program, I wanted to share some insights from my interview with Vice Admiral Raquel Bono, leader of the Defense Health Agency. So, Vice Admiral, would you provide us with an overview of of the Defense Health Agency's mission? How has it evolved since its inception? Oh, great. Well, we have been in evolution for some time now, as as you'll probably recall. We were actually stood up in 2013, and we reached full operating capability in 2015. And that's when I came in in November of 2015 as the second director of the Defense Health Agency. And what we did at that time is we had an opportunity to see how could we help create efficiencies and savings for the military health system. And one of the first places we looked at were the ten, were ten shared services. And these represent about 85% of the shared functions and processes that occur across Army, Air Force, and Navy medicine. Things like logistics, health information technology, the TRICARE health plan, education and training, pharmacy, things like that that we knew happens across all of the services. So that was the first initial part of the DHA, the Defense Health Agency portfolio. In addition to that, we also had oversight of the national capital region and the market there in running the care through the direct system, the direct care system uh, through Walter Reed and Fort Belvoir and some of the clinics. And then the third thing that we had as the Defense Health Agency is we were also designated as a combat support agency. And what that means is that we provide actual direct support to the combatant commands. And that's something that I think is is a, a very uh, pivotal and important task, especially as the president and the secretary of defense and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs are articulating their national strategies for military security and defense security. So I, I think the, the timing is great. Mm-hmm. And in each of those three areas that I just described, We've, we've not only experienced uh, additional evolution, but we've cre- created greater maturation and understanding of how we can contribute to the effectiveness and efficiency of the, the military health system. Excellent. You've provided us a sense of the larger organization and your mission. Uh, could you tell us more about your specific responsibilities and duties as director of Defense Health Agency? How do your efforts support the department's overall mission? You know, Mark, that I, I think that that's, that question, too, is so important. And, and it's also evolving because as a defense health agency, as I mentioned, one of our, our roles is as a combat support agency. And mm-hmm. in, that, in, in that capacity, uh, we really want to be added value to what uh, the, the president's uh, national security strategy is all about. How do we contribute to that? And then certainly with the Secretary of Defense and, and his national defense strategy, which will, uh, which will be coming out uh, soon, is, is how do we then contribute to the Secretary of Defense's intent of reforming and rebuilding the, the military? How does, how does the military health fit into that? <clears throat> so as I'm looking at it, I see that there are several opportunities in there. Not only can the, the Defense Health Agency help create savings and efficiencies, uh, which will then uh, provide additional capital to reinvest in either directly into military support or into the military health system itself. Not only can we do that, but we can also help set those conditions which allow our military forces to succeed no matter where they are, whether that's in support of their health or in support of any kind of contingency operation where they might need direct medical care in whatever type of, of operation they're engaged in. So I see, I see that as something evolving, and, and we want to pay attention to what the, the security environment looks like and what the strategic elements are that are in play. I think, uh, though, that you're probably aware that in the NDAA in 2017, we had new statute that expanded some of the authority for the Defense Health Agency. And I'm very excited about this. I think that not only does it allow us to position the military health system to be even more effective in our readiness, it also gives us a greater role in contributing 
to what we can do to the overall DOD business reform. Because I think, as you know, that is one of, of, the, of the lines of effort that the Secretary of Defense is asking us to do. So with all these changes, Admiral, um, what are some of your, say, say, top three management challenges that you faced? And how have you sought to address those challenges? So, um, you, know, you know, it's interesting that you would call it a, a challenge. I, I like to think of them as, as an opportunity, you know, and, but I don't use opportunity lightly because I think that where, when you have these, these uh, circumstances where some of these things come into alignment, what is so exciting about it is the opportunity to create change in a really meaningful way. And so um, I'll tell you the, the things that I'm seeing as drivers that I'm using, oh, okay. you know, for these opportunities. The first one is, is the NDA 2017. And in NDA 2017, not only do we um, uh, have the oversight of the budget now, <clears throat> and I already told you what the budget looks like, um, and uh, military construction, health information technology, not only do we have that kind of, of, of oversight and, and authority, we also are going to be expanding that to make sure that we're running the hospitals in a more standardized way because we also want to have a health system. We also want to co-create a health system that is, is truly designed with our patients in mind. Actually, they help us be the architects for that, that healthcare system. So it's an important piece that, that as we integrate our patients into the design of their healthcare system, we're also, in a stepwise fashion, creating a much more robust, integrated system of readiness and health. So I see that as, as one of the greatest opportunities with the NDA 2017. The second area that I think has a lot of, of just, uh, you know, an abundance of, of opportunities here is in the DOD and, and military health system reform. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I'm sure industry is paying attention to that very closely. I, at least I hope. I, mean, I hope I'm not the first one to be telling you that, right? I know. Oh, what a surprise, right? So, but, you know, I think that, um, you know, Secretary uh, Mattis has been really very articulate, you know, wants us to make sure that we're really able to invest in our military forces and, and, and address that lethality, being able to create and sustain peace through strength. I think that's extremely important, and, I, and, and that is something that's a real driver for me. The second line of effort that he have is allies and partners. And, and while I know that the traditional thinking is how do we make and create these allies and partners with nations, nations through their military, is there a role that we can help with what we do in the military health system? And then the big um, line of effort that Secretary of Defense has talked about is, is um, bringing business reform to DOD. And, I mean, what better place to try that than in the health sector? And actually, I think my, my timing happens to be just great because you know that that's one of the things that are constantly uh, assailing the civilian and private uh, health sector is, is how, do we, how do we do this in the best way possible, in a sustainable way? And then the third area, and this will probably be a, a – I know that Mark is, is going to be very familiar with this. I think the third area where I, I see <clears throat> great momentum being den, uh, generated is in the deployment of MHS Genesis, our new electronic health record. And while it's easy to say, oh, it's an electronic health record, I think you, bo- you both know that it's a lot more that's than... Easy. That's the only thing that's easy to yes, say. Yes, it's just to say it, exactly, <laughs> because, you know, what we're talking about is, you know, profound change management. change management. Yes, yes. And I think that is a real mind shift. You know, you have to be prepared in order to really fully realize and capitalize on such a powerful tool. You have to be willing to change the way you do business. And, and so those are the three areas that, that I see, like, yes, challenging, but challenging opportunities. So I'd like to understand more about your, your leadership style. Um, what, um, what makes an effective leader? What are some of the key principles that you follow that inform your efforts? Well, you know, I, I, that's a, one of my favorite topics because I think that um, I think leadership is a very personal experience. At least it is for me. I should I should caveat it that way. Um, and I think that um, what I I try to always be mindful of is is first being mindful. And I think you and I we'd spoken a few minutes earlier about being in the moment. Yes. You have to be present. You really need to be present. And and I. I I don't take that lightly because you have to be present in order to be attentive and listen. And I think that is one of the greatest um, skills or one of the greatest tools that I think leaders have to have is the ability to listen and really hear 
what what somebody else is telling you because change is always challenging and if you're not if you're not tuned in to what others are telling you then you might miss that opportunity to help make that shift a little easier or that you know that movement a little smoother and so i think being attentive and listening is something that I feel is an important aspect of, of what I bring to my leadership style. The other thing that, that I, I, um, I feel is extremely important is being inclusive. And inclusive is something, is a term that gets thrown around, but the way I, I like to do that is um, inclusive and, and diversity seem to go hand in hand. But I've come to appreciate that diversity is really all about perspective. So if I'm trying to be inclusive, how do I gain the perspective of others? What is the most? What is the best way that I can gain the perspective of others? And I think Mark has had personal experience of sitting in one of my meetings, or maybe several, <laughs> several, <laughs> several. And and he has seen what what happens in those meetings is that I I typically make it a point at one point in the meeting, usually as we're wrapping up, to ask everybody what they think. Oh, wow. And so we go around the room, and I not only ask the people around the table, I ask the people who are around the room to give me thoughts on what they're, what they're thinking. And it might be, it might have something to do with what we talked about. It could be something that is totally, a totally different subject. But what it does, it gives me perspective. And it's, it's interesting what you learn when you understand someone's perspective. Um, so I, I think that even if it might seem, uh, you know, not particularly related it gives me insight into where that person might be in that moment and what might be important to them. And if if they if I want them to be a part of my team, then this this leads to the my third uh, attribute or the third um, characteristic is engagement. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if I know where somebody's at, then it it helps me understand how the best way to engage them. You know, how do I get to where they are? And then how do we figure out how we want to move? And then how do we create that collective impact? One last question, Vice Admiral Bono, is what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service, military service, or even medicine? You know, do it. Do it. You'll, you'll, you, won't be, you won't be disappointed. I, I personally feel that, that having a military career or having any type of military service is one of the most um, liberating and growth experiencing uh, event that you'll ever have. Um, being able to combine public service with my own medical background and then being able to evolve into some kind of leadership um, capability has, I don't think I would have gotten that same opportunity uh, anywhere else. I, I, I know I'm, I'm extremely biased to that, but I, I think that the other part of this is, is no matter how long a person comes in to serve in the military, it leaves an indelible mark on you. And that, is, and that indelible mark is something that others will recognize and will, will be drawn to. Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, that if people are considering that, I mean, of course, I'm in a Navy uniform. I would say go Navy, but <laughs> you know, but I think any military exposure and experience is valuable. It's extremely valuable, and I'll tell you the other piece about being in the military that I've personally found is that it is the one arena where I've consistently seen that people get advanced based on their on the merit of their performance, and and so I I think that. When you're able to show that ability to advance within a system where it is strictly on merit, I would hope that someone would realize or come away with a, a, a very deep-seated sense of, of um, satisfaction and confidence. And I think that's what um, a career or a job or time spent in the military has done for many people. I know it has for me. So I, I, would, I would advise people. And I would also say, you know, if I can do it, they can too. Certainly. So I would I would invite people to, to consider the military as a, as a career. Well, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. And wonderful answers, great conversation. But more importantly, Mark and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thanks. It, it really is my honor. Thank yes. you. This has been the Business of Government Hour, commemorating women in the military. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.